0: It's a fascinating and challenging time to be in marketing. The technology landscape is rapidly growing, but maybe not as fast as the growing concerns about consumer privacy. So how do companies continue their marketing journey into the future? In this episode, I speak to JC Granger, CEO of Infinity Marketing Group, about the future of marketing and how to consider balancing that with consumer trust and privacy. And so what happens is we want to have ads and we want things that are relevant to us because
1: people love buying stuff. We just hate being sold. And really, you're being sold when it's something you don't want
0: and you're buying something when it's something you do. JC Granger has 20 years in digital marketing experience. He launched his agency in 2011 and finds particular joy in empowering tech companies to grow while discovering exponential digital sales success. JC is a passionate and skilled marketer who takes pride in Infinity Marketing Group's ability to deliver a comprehensive ROI for its clients. So, ready to dive into marketing and the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. JC Granger, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. You bet. So, we had an interesting conversation a few weeks back about marketing and privacy and the trajectory we're on. So, a lot of folks are starting to realize more and more that their data is being used. A lot of people may not understand exactly where or how. But they are making the connection between the website they just visited a few minutes ago and the ads that are starting to pop up on Facebook or wherever they are visiting right now. So I wonder what you think, based on your marketing experience, what you're seeing around the concerns with your clients around balancing convenience with privacy and marketing.
1: Well, you know, it's a different answer for clients versus consumers because, you know, you ask a client, well, they want all the data. Because you know obviously the more information they have, the better they can target market and you know segment their lists and make sure they're they're providing you know marketing and, and their products and services to the right demographic at the right time. But if you ask a thousand people you know what they want with their data, they'd say they want it all private, and which makes sense when my clients aren't clients, they're also consumers, right The problem is you know you can't have both right so for example, I remember when like Hulu came out originally right because they were competing with Netflix, and they said well Ours is free, you know, we have a free version, but you just have to watch some ads. And I remember in the initial parts, the ads were wildly unrelated to me, right? You know, there'd be ads for, you know, luxury sports cars or, you know, diapers. (laughs) You know, and I didn't, you know, at the time when I was, you know, watching, I was like, well, my kid doesn't need diapers and, and I'm not buying a sports car. And so eventually they started adding this, this feature on there where they started asking, basically, you know, is this ad relevant to you? So they kind of self-governed in the middle and in, in, in there. But that was because they didn't have a way at the time to know their consumers who were watching. They didn't have cross data pollination where they could know that the person watching was also person X over here online. And so what happens is we want to have ads and we want things that are relevant to us because people love buying stuff. We just hate being sold. And really you're being sold when it's something you don't want and you're buying something when it's something you do. So, when it comes to data as a marketer, you know, we love having as much as we can, but we have to balance that with the consumers wanting to protect it because, unfortunately, you have bad actors out there that are harvesting the data, you know, stealing it online, you know, using it to get people's identities and credit card information and all these things that are really disruptive to someone's life. It's that paradox question of, you know, where's that middle ground? And the one part of marketing that I have found that a lot of consumers don't really understand when it comes to data is they see the headline of data companies that have all this information about you, and they're giving it to marketing companies. And although that's technically, in a way, true, it's not true in the way that they're viewing it. So there's this thing called hashing, where essentially it's basically encrypted data. So if I go to a data company and I say, I need the data of all these you know, software CEOs of companies that are this size in this location that have this much revenue, right? Right. Well, I can get that data, but I can't see it, right? So I can get that data and I can import it into like a Google ads campaign or Facebook campaign. And it's what's called hashed, which basically means that I can use the data. So I know that everyone that I'm sending this ad to is the right person, but I can't like open it up and see first name, last name, email, phone number, and stuff like that. So that's actually what's going on more and more these days. The, um, The companies found a middle ground where they were able to share data without revealing the details, if that makes any sense.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's a great opportunity to find the balance, for, like you said, the the best of both worlds, where you're still providing some level of privacy uh, to consumers or your potential customers out there, but still getting a lot of great insights that not only help your business, but also help provide relevant marketing to potential clients that are out, that are out in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, again, privacy is important. You know, and also as
0: marketers, it's been
1: uh, frustrating a little bit over the last few years because browsers now start off at like, you know, less than 1%. And now two, three years later, you have 20 to 30% of browsers automatically blocking data. Now, again, from the consumer side of my brain, I'm like, sweet, awesome. But from the marketing side of my brain, I'm like, well, that's terrible. Because what happens for our clients and just for any business who's trying to understand what's going on when they're marketing, the problem is, is that they, they can't track. And if they can't track, then they don't know what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And so that percentage of data that's not being shared is growing every day. And although that might sound really great to privacy advocates, it also does hurt the economics. I mean, marketing is what America runs on. It's the, it's the gas in the engine. You know, if we can't market properly, we can't sell properly. If we don't sell, people don't buy. If people don't buy, then we're not the capitalist nation that we've built ourselves on. So it all really does connect. So the the harder it gets to track with marketing, the economy itself actually suffers. You know, um, people go to work, and if the job that they go to, if that company can't sell their services or products as well, they can't afford as many employees. So someone's getting laid off. You know, so it really, there is a ripple effect. And so it's interesting to try to figure out where that middle ground is between wanting to protect your data but wanting, but understanding that you are part of an entire machine that is what creates the country and, and the economy that you live in.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that really starts to build into the relationships that companies have with their consumers or potential consumers and the level of trust they're able to build with those consumers. Now that trust is probably going to depend on their experience across the web landscape, beyond just the specific companies that might be engaging with them through their websites or through social media and so forth, but there's an interesting aspect of trust here that I wonder if that is harder to gain to some extent in, in relation to the privacy or the data that that you know that folks may or may not want to give, and how that really starts to factor into the relationship question that companies have with their consumers or potential consumers in their market. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I was just talking to a few clients uh, this week about the relationship base. So, you know, marketing and advertising ever since probably the 60s uh, and 70s has started going more towards technology and pricing, right? About branding, right? Getting your brand out there, inbound marketing, things like that. Um, it was a slow evolution that, you know, obviously uh, really peaked hard here in the mid 2000s. What happened here with Corona is it kind of traumatized the business market. So What ended up happening is, you know, you look back at these old movies of, you know, in the 20s, 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, where, you know, this handshake and a a smile, that was a deal. That's how you bought a car. That's how you bought a house. That's how you uh, bought pretty much anything, you know, door to door salesman kind of thing. It was all relationship based one to one. And if you trusted the person and the product seemed rational and valid for you, then, you know, you buy it, right? But then over the decades, what ended up happening was that things became, you know, more automated, cheaper, faster. You know, advertising became, you know, on TV and and marketing and inbound, you know, and branding and all this stuff started really contributing. And so now you had people buying things based on brand awareness of it, you know, have I heard of it before from someone else? You know, do they have commercials which must mean they, they must be big, which means they must be quality. That's just kind of the psychology that sets in. And so that was all very true until about a year ago or less than a year ago. And what's happened now is because so many companies went under, that kind of trauma has set in. So what you have now is all these business owners who the relationships that that they're going to do, if they're going to hire a vendor for services or products or whatnot, they want to know they're going to be around in six months. And that's not a guarantee in their head. It, it doesn't matter... When the Corona quote goes away, you know, I was telling you in the pre-show, an analogy that I'd used was, you know, my great grandparents, you know, good luck telling them that their cash shouldn't be in their mattress, right? Because they remember when the banks ran out of money. And it doesn't matter that the FDIC came in and insured everything one day. You can't convince someone that has that kind of trauma set in. They're going to just stay with their actions. And COVID has really set in a trauma with businesses where... They're really only willing now to work with people that they trust and have those relationships with because they're very scared about their budget because they don't know if something else is going to happen and they want to make sure that whoever they're working with is solid. So that's been that whole shift in marketing now recently has been relationship-based versus branding-based.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting trajectory as we think about where we're headed next, you know, what's going to happen in the future. A lot of folks, as we talked about privacy and data, and we see a lot of regulations starting to pop up across the world to help control not even just the use of data, but also the consent that people have in relation to the use of their data. And different countries and different areas of the world might have different opinions on this, but it's really interesting to see these bits and pieces starting to come together and start to tell a story of what the future might look like for marketing. So what are some of the things you see or some of the trends you see for the future of marketing? Well, for one, you know, the more outbound
1: uh, relationship-based one-to-one contacts are going exponential now. So email marketing, for example, uh, LinkedIn outreach, if you're B2B, um, text message marketing, if you're B2C, um, getting those high-touch, quick response, direct one-to-one relationship style marketing, that's what's really ramping up right now. And again, what I'm going to say doesn't apply to Fortune 500s, right? They have enough money to spend where, you know, they can do all the things, okay? But if you're a small business and let's say you were, you know, doing a long-term SEO, right? Search engine optimization and you were, you know, putting out content and really just kind of hoping to draw people toward you. It's not that that won't work. It's just that the amount of money it'll take, the amount of time it'll take to work is now an upside-down equation. Versus that direct outreach, you know. So if you're B two B, you know, getting on LinkedIn and connecting with people in that very laser targeted market that you want to connect with, and having real conversations with them. Um, email marketing, you know, a big thing as well. Segmenting those lists and making sure that you're doing more personal style outreach, you know, less flashy graphic based emails and more one to one, like you're emailing your grandma kind of emails. You know what I mean? Text message marketing for B two C, you know, reaching out and actually texting out to your Consumers, the ones that, of course, have opted in for it. So that's really what's moving forward. You know, it's really complicated too. There's a lot more to it than even we can explain on the show. Uh, there's there's a book I'm writing right now called uh, Crisis Marketing How to Survive and Thrive in Pandemics, Bubble Bursts, and Corporate Scandals. You know, there's a million books out there and material about how to do marketing, but there's essentially almost nothing out there about how to market when a black swan type of event happens. And then uh, we knew I talked about my, my podcast coming out. The future of biz tech. So I interview software CEOs, and I ask them about like what's coming in the future as well. And I think that's really fascinating because technology and software specifically has had to adapt and really fill in a lot of gaps for all the things that went away and were not usable during this pandemic. Right? I mean, my internet is slow all the time now because internet companies are struggling to keep up with all the people working from home. You know, so you've got uh, you know Zoom. Went through the roof in their stock <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? You know? So those, those kind of things—that's what's happening and pushing forward now with all the the changes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And companies have had to really think about how to adjust course, you know, towards this new world that we're living in really fascinating when you think about where all of that could head from a marketing perspective. And you hear a lot of folks talking about different types of concerns about what marketing might look like given the amount of data that's being collected. And there is definitely a perceived loss in privacy, even when you think about the dynamic of smart cities in the future and how we're going to have a lot of information collected about us and targeted to us um, as we navigate in the world in much different ways than we had in the past. But I wonder if that's something that you think about or if there's anything that specifically concerns you about the future.
1: Okay, so I I might be taking kind of a Stephen Hawking approach here on this one, but AI kind of terrifies me a little bit in in good and bad ways. You know, on one hand, you have what's called IoT, Internet of Things, right? And really that's just a fancy way of saying everything talking to each other. Now that's not AI, that's just communication between platforms and things. So for example, you get enough um, driverless cars On the road, there's a tipping point where those driverless cars can start talking to each other so they won't hit each other, for example. So they start um, bouncing signals off each other and and, and communicating so that they can uh, help with the flow of traffic, right? So if a non-self-driving car got an accident, all the other self-driving cars would automatically know how to reroute, right? So that's kind of internet of things, so to speak, things working together and talking to themselves. Now, that's pretty cool. There's going to be... That would be hard to have a downside to. The only downside there is when you start having systems communicate with each other, it also leaves you vulnerable where if someone can break into one system, they have access to all of them, right? So that could be an issue right there where if you start connecting too many things, then if there's a bad actor out there who wants to, you know, sabotage something or, you know, get in there, they have access to more because each thing leads to the next, right? It's a daisy chain, basically. Um, and I would hope obviously that, you know, that that's being taken into consideration and then that there's, you know, firewalls and roadblocks between those. But that's one thing that, that kind of concerns me um, when it comes to that, but I also see the upside. I'm 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 not a fear based person. I see the upside and the, the hope based, and I think that the more that things talk to each other, um, not only the better, more efficient things get. Um, you know, between travel, the markets. I mean, you you name it. There's everything can benefit from that as well, which is really cool. I love AI. I do. I love machine learning, and I like things I can think on their own. But there is that. That caveat where it's like at some point, you know, if you let it get out of control, it wouldn't be something that's a gradual problem. You know, we'd wake up today and everything's fine. And then we wake up tomorrow and nothing is, you know what I mean? Because the speed at which an AI gone wrong can go wrong is so beyond our comprehension, you know, of of how we think of things progressing that it would just be a, it would be like getting broadsided by a Mack truck. Right, there wouldn't be an in between, you know. So, you know, my fear is you put AI, AI into you know airlines or you know or uh, financial systems, something like that. And, you know, and the thing is, as humans, we're going to do it. We're going to go for it. There, there's no way around this. We're going to do it <laughs> because because we're explorers. We're you know by heart, you know, and by instinct, you know, we're always going to push the envelope. And everyone is kind of doing it on their own. But you know, if it gets to a point where somebody gets too good at AI and then releases it into a financial market because they want to make more money, but then they might end up crashing the market by accident. You know what I mean? And that's trillions of dollars in people's savings. I mean, you you thought the housing crash was bad. That would be nothing. That'd be a blip compared to if if a, a rogue AI got into the stock market, you know, that was that smart. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I share a lot of those same concerns. Uh, there, there's so many different, you know, vulnerabilities, like you mentioned. Having everything connected can lead to a lot of cool opportunities, like you mentioned. There's a lot of neat things that we can do for the environment, in healthcare, um, and safety for people. I mean, all those things are really beneficial. But, you know, the thing that freaks me out is like neural mesh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think about from like the Internet of Things perspective.
1: Well, you know, honestly, though, it's it's funny you say that the neural mesh, basically plugging your brain into a, a computer hybrid, um, right? That might actually be the one thing that could save us from an AI thing, because, you know, the people who have fears are like, well, what if the robots take over? It's like, actually, technically, it's a, it's, it's a rational fear in a way, <laughs> right? Uh, there's some people who take it a little too far, but but technically speaking, it's a rational fear, right? The only way to really make it not an us versus them is to is a hybrid model, and we already do this remember we already have um, mechanical and electronic you know arms and stuff for amputees from wars you know we already have these things happening um you know the next step in the evolution is tapping into our brains right and I, I think the one thing that could actually keep a balance is if it's not an us versus the AI it's us with AI and I think that's really the solution there is that if we can make ourselves a hybrid and smarter with AI, well, then us as humans can still control it with our own, you know, values and morals and things like that. Whereas an AI would be amoral and would just do things so logically that, you know, we might be the problem. And now the logical solution is <laughs> for us to not be around anymore. Right. You know, that's, that's, you start going in a Terminator 2 space, you know, at that point, right. right? You know, we laugh about it, but you know, the, the, one of the smartest men in the whole planet ever lived. That was his biggest fear, you know, Stephen Hawking, and that you know I've, I trust his fears. <laughs> so I, I think it's that I think you know, neural mesh actually makes me a little excited at for a balance to where there's a, a a cohabitation to it and not a two sides of the coin.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it really maybe it really brings to the forefront the importance of ethics and technology. Yes, because I think a lot of our concerns are really around the ethical use of those technologies and the eth- ethical build of those technologies, and also at what point is it become risky to push the boundaries even further than we are today? Like you said, if we keep trying to push the boundaries the way we have over the last several years, at what point is it time to stop? Well, we, we already have.
1: And we are, here's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, again, remember the housing crash? The housing, people look at the housing crash because they say Wall Street got out of hand and they started doing junk bonds with, with housing, right? And that's fine. But you know what enabled that? It was technology that made that possible. That wasn't something you could run on spreadsheets, okay? That wasn't something you can run on paper. Um, the foundation of the ability to basically take somebody's mortgage and then split it up a thousand ways and put it out into these and package it into these other packages, that was software that made that possible. There's no way to track that without that. So I think that's, that's the issue that it becomes is that someone makes a platform and a foundation to do one thing. And then someone over here goes, hey, you know what I could do with that? And that's really where the issue is. It's not someone going, I want to make this software that's going to crash the housing market, or I want to make this software that's going to, you know, hurt people. It's they want to make a software that does one thing, and then someone else figures out how to exploit it because they don't have ethics, you know, or maybe they, they thought that it wouldn't be a problem. Maybe it's ignorance, too. I think between technology and ignorance, we're just as much as at risk as unethical behavior too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the, you know, the potential for unintended consequences. And why it's really important that when folks are developing new technologies that are disruptive, that they think about it from a critical lens as well. Not even just about the benefit it can bring, but also what harm could be potentially done in the creation of this new dis- disruptive technology. I think that question, especially for i mean, so there's going to be some things that it, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, anything, you know, small gadgets for our home and that kind of thing. But when we think about the Internet of Things in particular that question becomes much more profound when things are connecting to other things in ways that that could lead to unintended consequences or outcomes,
1: yeah, no exactly, I agree, yeah,
0: interesting space. I keep telling my daughter she needs to consider going into you know some kind of digital ethics or technology ethics field in the future. There'll be lots of opportunities i think uh in the near future in that in that field oh yeah
1: yeah yeah it'll it'll be needed, but the, the question is will it be ignored you gosh,
0: know? yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. But hey, <laughs> for all of our sake, right? Where we continue down this Terminator path, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's go a different direction. Uh, let's let's talk about things that we're we're optimistic about in the future. So, tell me a few things you're optimistic about in the future.
1: Uh, optimistic. I mean, I, I honestly think that what's going to be great is I think healthcare is going to really really benefit here in the future because, um, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you fall on in regards to you know universal healthcare or you know all private or whatnot. i think that what's pushing really harder now is healthcare technology and the fact is that's good for everybody because technology can really help make things cheaper and one thing that everyone can agree on is healthcare is expensive in america it doesn't matter if you're republican democrat independent it doesn't matter everyone agrees that healthcare is expensive And we wish it wasn't, but we disagree on how to get to that part. And the one thing that I've seen happening a lot lately is um, the new advances, not only in software for healthcare, but in the hardware. I mean, look at 5G coming out too. So 5G is, uh, everyone's looking at it from a consumer point of view. We're like, oh, look, my phone is going to be really fast. Um, And yes, it will. But 5G is so, it's not some like gradual evolution from 4G. I mean, it's exponential. It's not even close. I forget like like what kind of exponential it is. I, I remember it was something stupid like 100 times faster or something than than 4G, right? You know, LTE it makes it it makes it look like a snail and you're running a rabbit next to it. You know what I mean? And why that's important is because at that speed, you can actually have um, they were sh- I was watching this special where they were showing the ability for a surgeon remotely it could be in India, it could be in in Spain and the speeds were so fast that they could tap into uh, one of those Uh, mechanical uh, surgery machines, which typically they do on site, right? For those little kind of nano type of surgeries that human hands are too big to actually get in there and do those really specialized surgeries. Like if you're trying to extract cancer or doing bypasses and things like that, um, where they really need to get in there and you could have a doctor somewhere around the world that is hooked into their own machine and they can literally do a surgery on someone here in America or vice versa. Right, so when you start looking at things like that, that's really cool because you know that doctor who is amazing might charge half the price of a doctor here to do it. Now, of course, you probably still have to pay the facility fee and whatnot, but that's one example of where the speed of technology coming out, you know, five G and, and healthcare software things like that could really help streamline and save costs. Now, are there are other repercussions to that, sure, but when things advance in the healthcare world. That's the one thing where everyone can literally benefit. And so that's what I'm really optimistic for, because especially when you have a pandemic going on, it really brings healthcare to the forefront. And technology has been really, really helping with that. So I'm really hopeful for that in the, in the next uh, three to four years, for sure.
0: Oh yeah, I think healthcare is a tremendous opportunity for improvements and access to care, uh, cost of care, um, all of these things that are critically important for a well society. uh, Things that are challenges that we have today, and hopefully we get to this place where healthcare is not politicized. Because to your point, I think everyone can agree that you know healthcare is expensive and that's a problem. But the solutions become difficult to find. But if we are able to find creative ways to improve access to care and affordability to care, and also quality of care, which is another really amazing thing that's happening as a byproduct of COVID to some extent, is that healthcare systems have had to become more agile. They've had to become more clean. And those impacts will be positive for all of us when we seek healthcare in the future post-pandemic. Yeah, I agree. Well, hey, I wonder if you have any advice that you would provide to any companies out there, because I know as they're navigating into this future, we talked a little bit about what the future might hold in relation to marketing. We talked a little bit about the importance of relationships as we consider our marketing strategies and so forth. If you had a leader today that's listening out there and wants one step to get started towards a better path toward their marketing future, what would you recommend for them to do?
1: I'd say to switch to a more of an engagement situation, you know, rather than branding, right? So branding is just, you know, that's billboards and commercials and display advertising and content, and things like that. Again, those are all great. But if you have a limited budget, that engagement type of thinking is where you're going to really be successful. So if you're again, B2B, it's those direct outreaches on, on LinkedIn, on email and text messaging, if you're B2C. But specifically as a, as a quick little tip, See a lot of people when they they think engagement they they're looking at their stats on social media of like people replying you know or or commenting and stuff and that is true but again social media is more of a promotional style more branding than it is direct engagement. So my point is that for example let's say that you are already sending out email newsletters, right? Let's say you have a really cool graphic email newsletter that goes out once a month about your products or services and you're really proud of it. I would suggest split testing that with a text-based email. That asks a question, so maybe one to two sentences. Personalize it. Says, you know, hey John, we're coming out with this new service that does this. I'd love your feedback on this particular part. You know, what do you think about X, Y, Z? Question mark, right? And and what you're going for there? See, instead of just putting the graphics and saying, here's a link to the new website, and and here's a video that shows the the, the product and service, blah blah blah. That's promotional. That's shoving it down people's throats if people start switching more to an engagement thought process where they start reaching out directly and asking these questions, you can do it still automated. You can send 10,000 at once, right? You can have 10,000 questions out there, and then you know, hopefully you get a certain percentage of people that reply back. But if you switch to a more of an engagement uh, foundation, what's going to happen is you're going to build that relationship. It's going to shorten your sales cycle, and it's going to increase your conversion rate as well. Because again, that kind of trauma is set in, and now no one really trusts that whatever company that they're working with or buying from is solid because they don't know because we don't know a lot of things right now things are really unstable and even when they get stable again that trauma set in so my biggest advice is uh switch to a more of a of an engagement style personality when you're when you're marketing and come back a little bit off of the branding and promotional stuff because I think you'll see a big difference
0: yeah that's great advice and I want to also give you an opportunity to give a teaser about your podcast, because of course, I'm really intrigued about you know, the types of guests you're getting and stuff. I know you gave a little bit of a teaser before, but what are a few things that we can look forward to in your new podcast? Oh, yeah.
1: So it's called The Future of BizTech and with a B-I-Z-T-E-C-H. So it'll be on iTunes and you know, Spotify and all the, all, the, all the places, all the things. Essentially, I interview medium to large size B2B software CEOs and CMOs. And really what I'm going for is a, a part of the podcast is kind of asking you know, how they built it, right? But the majority of it is you know what's coming down the pipeline. So one of our guests um, that we have that we'll be leading off with is the CEO of a software called Trainual. And Trainual was something that I found um, a couple of years ago that blew my mind. It was basically the software that allows a company to upload and automate the process of their uh, employee onboarding. And that was something that was really hard for me before because I was having to kind of go off of a checklist before and making sure I was doing it right, whereas I could upload all this and then I could just invite my new employee, they would log in and they would be able to go through each step and check it off as they were done. And so I didn't even have to talk to the person after they hired them until they were done. So this way, when I did talk to them, they were totally caught up. They had gone through everything. They knew our processes. They knew our policies. They knew our ethics and our values. You know, They they knew all those things. They were already logged into stuff. And day one, I could talk to them and knew exactly what I was talking about. So it was such an incredible software and I loved it. So I got to interview that CEO But yeah, I mean, that that's an example, though, you know, there's another CEO, I I got to interview talking about the ethics part here, they made a software that tags on top of a Google ads campaign, for example, so that your ads don't run on websites that don't go with your ethics and morals. So for example, you don't want probably your services or your products running on a site that talks about white supremacy, right? So they figured out how to give websites a toxicity score so that your ads won't be next to those because that could look bad for your brand. I thought that was really cool, right? So that's the kind of, those are the types of people that I'm interviewing. It's it's not just like basic software, it's cool stuff that not only I think can really help small to medium-sized businesses be efficient, but also that where they're going in the future is going to really change the industries that they're in.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to hear that and hear some of your first few episodes, because that sounds really intriguing to me. So folks, go check out JC's new podcast that's coming out, Future of Biz Tech. You've got a book coming out. When's your book due out? Oh boy! Um. So I just
1: did a I just did a co-author book with a bunch of guys, and that was called Mission Matters. But the solo book, the crisis marketing one, that's probably about a year out. Between you know uh, getting done writing it, getting it edited, you know, published, all that stuff. So it's probably about a year out. But um, it'll always still be relevant because people remember what's going on right now, and I think people are going to be switching their mindset from fear of what they're going through now to trying to be prepared for if it happens again. So I think the timing will still be really good, but the crisis marketing book will probably be about late 2021.
0: Awesome. Something for us to look forward to. So keep an eye out for his upcoming book in about a year. Otherwise you can find his podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and find his podcast, probably the same place you find mine. (laughs) So JC Granger, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fascinating.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome.
0: J.C. takes pride in his company and his vision of the future, but also in the value of outbound relationship-based marketing. While the evolution of technology is fascinating, what may be more interesting and may be more important, is to consider how our relationships could evolve along with those changes. The reality is that as people become more aware of the data being collected about them, they may also become more wary, which makes sense. As J.C. mentions, marketers themselves are consumers and want to consider their own privacy as well. This should not be seen as a limiting factor. Instead, it should be seen as a hotbed for innovation, with high potential for the application of empathy by design. As marketing evolves and considers ways to personalize content, they also have a tremendous opportunity to find new ways to maintain and even grow trust, and bolster the relationships they build with their consumers and beyond. And if relationships are really the key, it opens the door to so many possibilities to bolster trust while creating relevant experiences that help consumers locate what they need when they need it. So it's a great time to learn more about the future of marketing for all of us. It's also the perfect time for us to reframe how we think about innovation in the future in terms of bolstering relationships and maintaining trust. And while you're at it, go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about J.C. and his company, Infinity Marketing Group, go to infinitymgroup.com. That's infinitymgroup.com. Before you leave, make sure to subscribe to Humans Now and Then so you don't miss the amazing episodes coming soon. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.